Lesson six is on one, you know, let's see, six. No, this is not six. What's going on here? Uh, page 137. Rabbi, are we, we have class next week, right? Yep. Okay, let me make sure. Every Tuesday straight through till winter break time. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, we're continuing on in the in the this this section of, of of the book of Exodus, where we're kind of getting towards the end of. We had narrative, revelation, ten commandments, which we started out, and then we kind of transitioned to kind of certain types of laws that we had been discussing. And now we kind of get to um, what I would call a more poetic section that kind of concludes the listing of laws before we transition again. Um, and it includes maybe legal-like statements. You'll, you'll, you'll be the judge of that. Um, but it's written, I think you'll see, in kind of a more poetic way and um, brings in some interesting concepts. And I'm being vague because I just want you to see it first, but I'm trying to frame it a little bit. So as you look at it, you know, we want to try to use our interpretive minds. We're on 137, page 137. We want to use our interpretive minds, and we want to try to delve into, like, as, you're, as we're reading the translation of the actual text, again, what's interesting about it, what needs definition, what's strange, um, or perhaps since it's poetry a little bit, or at least in my opinion, poetic, what, what kind of images does it bring up or what might it teach you that might not be directly on the surface? Okay? Those are kind of my framing words. So if you'll look at the text on 137, is anybody willing to read in English out loud for everybody else with me annoying you by pausing you sometimes? Go ahead, Simon. I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have made already. Pay heed to him and obey him. Do not defy him, for he will not pardon your offenses since my name is in him. But if you obey him and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I annihilate them. You shall not bow down to their gods in worship or follow their practices, but shall tear them down and smash their pillars to bits. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. No woman in your land shall miscarry or be barren. I will let you enjoy the full count of your days. I will send forth my terror before you, and I will throw into panic all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn tail before you. Keep going. Might as well just read the whole thing. I will send a plague ahead of you. It shall drive out before you the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiplied to your hurt. I will drive them out before you little by little, until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your borders from the Sea of Reeds to the Sea of Philistia and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of your land into your hands, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not remain in your land, lest they cause you to sin against me, for you will serve their gods, and it will prove a snare to you. All right, so that's the section. 
Yeah, I mean, you can reread it if you want. Um, I'm just curious, like, how would you characterize maybe the essence of the text? There's probably more than one essence. And, you know, which, which perhaps things in the text either bother you or are interesting, you know, you have questions about any, any and all. I just want to pull some things. The one thing is, Go ahead. it assumes everybody in the land is bad, it's an enemy, uh -huh. and we're going to annihilate them piece by piece until we're able to take over the entire land. So there's just this assumption that there's no one in here that is worth saving. Okay, so I want to um, highlight one of the things you said, and I would just say question, because, you know, one of the uh, one part of what you said, which the highlight is, the presumption is is that everybody in the land is quote unquote. I'll use your technical term, bad, right? And then the question that would follow is, in what way do you think this text is identifying them as bad? Why? You know, is it because they steal cookies from each other? Like, what is it? Why do you get a flavor from the text about what about them is bad? Um, if, to use your language. And this, the, the thing that I would question, perhaps, is do you think the text is claiming that we're going to annihilate all the people in the land, like every person that we see? Or is the annihilation, quote-unquote, or whatever it's talked about in here, of a different nature? Um, so you can answer that question or your own. Go ahead, Renee. 28, God is sending a plague. Mm -hmm. So... Yes, it does seem that God's choice is to smite those who don't believe in him. Okay. And they're bad because they don't follow God. All right, so that's the thing. I think that's how I would phrase it, and I didn't want to pres presume that that's how to read it. I think the bad is not an ethical bad, right? I think the characterization here, there's a theological bad, right? Um, the bad is, is that, and where does that come out? Um, I think that comes out in verse 32 and 33. And 24. Right, and 24 before that, you're right. Um, so what we shouldn't do, verse 24, is, is bow down, and then what are we supposed to really be destroying is their idol worship. And the worry is, is that if we don't do that, what's going to happen? Right. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna, they're gonna be a snare to you. In other words, you're gonna get turned away from monotheism and God, and you're gonna get sucked into idol worship. And we've already learned previously that that's a bad combination for the covenant that you just made, right? So you just made a covenant, and the agreement was one of the only things God really asked. Um, other than the general following of the Torah, which one could say is a heavy ask, but um, is is that we have a covenant with one God, with the one God. And that the, the first couple of commandments, the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, however you divide them, because we talked about that, right, is really heavily about there's no idols, you know, there's, there's no such thing as other gods, it's just me. And that's really the bad. And what we have to eliminate, seems to be, is the influence of that bad, right? So I think that's, that's, um, that's the perspective of this text. It may disturb us, it may actually end up being that we're going to, because of this, end up being in a fight with people where we're going to end up killing them. That bothers us, right? Um, but I think the perspective of the text is theological in orientation, and right now is theoretical, right? It's theoretical. Um, it's not actually describing 
in my opinion, and maybe others. This is exactly what's going to happen. You're going to go there and you're going to start doing it. It's a, it's a theoretical model about when you go there, you're basically going to have to get rid of this part, uproot this culture from society. Yeah, Perry. Oh, sorry, Daryl, you too. You'll be next. You guys are so nice. <laughs> no, you. Jump ahead, way ahead. Yeah. The next generation. Please jump all you want. Isn't there? It's good for you. My memory is a little fuzzy, but isn't there a, a time where is, is the Israelites are commanded to you know, kill everyone to repeat this commandment? They have to kill all the Hivites and Jebusites and that, and they refrain from killing everyone. And doesn't God actually get angry at the fact that they... This is King Saul. Okay. Yep. Um, okay. And it's, it's a specific group of people at a specific time. This is actually... Oh, I thought it was a, Torah, actually. It, well, it's in the Tanakh, yeah, right, but right. it's not in the Torah itself. There are other parallel texts to this in Devarim and Deuteronomy, yeah. but when you're talking about a specific example where they were told to kill all of them and they didn't, yeah. um, that has to do with, I think, you're referring because you didn't use who when, and when and how, but uh, I think you're referring to an episode with King Saul, and as different from this, that was actually a historic accounts of a specific command about a specific battle where God wanted a certain thing done and then they decided not to and then God was upset that they didn't follow his commands all the way through and it was King Saul's choice and the reason King Saul saved certain uh, certain animals in, in fact is that he said that he was going to use them to make the sacrifice to God even greater and you know God said that's not what I want I'm not interested in that I think, he's, I think he's really for, forcing it because he thinks they're going to be easily swayed again. Because they've been swayed before. Mm-hmm. So I really think he's, he's, he's being tough with them, tough love. Yeah, this is not an easy text. Right. So this is a tough one. Um, and especially tough for us in the 21st century. We'd like to believe about ourselves. I don't know if it's true. But I, we'd like to believe about ourselves that we've historically advanced a little bit, that we don't, we're not as brutal... You know, we're not as this, we're not as that. Um, and I don't know whether it's actually true or not. There, you could analyze it from a different perspective. But certainly on the, on, the, on the front of it, you know, when we go to war, it's like army versus army. You know, killing a civilian is terrible. And I would agree. I mean, I'm, I would agree with that. But this idea of, like, going in and that all these people would have to die... Um, in, in such a war is really does not sit well. We really don't want the God that's commanding that, right? Um, and so we struggle with these, with these texts. Um, Question. Yeah. Um, I know they obviously limited the text to this part, but I, what I noticed about the text was that he just talks about if you listen to my messenger, this is everything I'll do for you. Is there anything that comes after, like if you don't listen? What yes. would happen? That yes. bad to them? Yes. Okay. Yes. I um, read that later, I guess. Y- y- yes. I mean, there's definitely... <laughs> yeah. um, read the sequel. Right. No, there's definitely in another section in, 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 in Exodus and then later again in Devarim, um, the section of the what's called the Tokacha, the rebuke. Um, and um, there's two versions of it, and it's tough. You know, if we don't... There's lots of bad things that are supposed to happen. It's another one. The rabbis were so 
either uncomfortable with it or recognize that it would be a burden to somebody who hadn't intellectualized it and studied it and parsed it into pieces so much that it ceased to become like an, you know, I think when you, not overstudy, but when you really delve into things, they get less scary or whatever and you take them less, I don't know if it's literally, because you are literally analyzing it and being less literal about it, um, that they recognize that the community for them to hear it would be frightening. Um, and the custom is to read this section from the Torah when you're doing it out loud in the sanctuary. You read it quietly and quickly. Like all of a sudden the person will be reading the normal Torah out loud with the trope or whatever and then all of a sudden they'll be like you know, they're very quiet. You have to say the words. You have to say them technically so that they're audible. But you do it as fast and as low tone as possible and get through it as quick as possible. Um, the rabbi saw this as a way of like, kind of not burdening the congregation with this very difficult language. So the answer is yes, essentially. Um, Beth and then Ron. Well, I was also struck by that introductory part of the text uh, when we're talking about the angel. Yes. Um, says, angel. Will not pardon your offenses. And that, you know, that seems to really set the tone for this text, mm-hmm. where we're not supposed to show any mercy for the people who are currently in the land when we get there. Interesting. Um, so you take, for he will not pardon your offenses, to imply something about the people that they're going to meet in the land? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're offending by worshiping idols. Hmm. Okay, that's good. I think that... Um, you know, just to be honest, most of the commentators take that directed at the Israelites. In other words, you Israelites pay heed, you know, and obey this angel. Don't defy the angel, you Israelites. For no, you, no, no. oh, okay. No, I mean it's setting the tone. There's uh, uh, uh. Here. So you're seeing a parallelism yes. between the the angel's relationship with the Israelites and then the Israelites' relationship with. Yeah, the, thank you. I didn't yeah, understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I understand. I think that's really, really smart. I think that's really nice to notice that. Yes, there's this theme of <laughs> difficult, you know, strict, very strict. Yeah. This is yeah, very strict. Mm-hmm. Ron. Um, I think we, I, I tried to touch upon this um, a couple sessions ago, but there's um, a little bit of, it almost seems like God doesn't quite trust us. It, it's kind of like a parent <laughs> right. would, would speak mm-hmm. to a kid. Nice. You know, I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Right. You better not, uh, you know, talk bad about him, and you know, make sure you go on this straight road. And you know, I'm leaving you with the babysitter. <laughs> Be nice. There's a lot of parallels between that, that we are literally as children at the time, but it's uh-huh. um, it's interesting how. Um, I, I I feel like I'm going to be struck down by saying that God's being a little sensitive, but um, it's no. interesting that God uh, is speaking to us in a way that sort of makes me feel like perhaps, you know, did this happen once before and it didn't work out correctly? Or, oh, you know? You're so perceptive in the text. I think it's a really beautiful thing to pick up on. The tone that God is talking in, does this imply of a past you know, problem, and I'll, I'll tell you, because you brought it up, that not yet, but the sin of the golden calf is still to come. We've taken a break from the narrative. And that one of the questions that is asked by the classic commentators is, is this because of the golden calf? And then the response is, well, it didn't happen yet. And then there's two possible responses to that. One is, is that Yes, but God's already anticipating it because God knows what's going to happen. Or 
there's a very strong camp within the Jewish within the rabbinic commentators, including Rashi, who many of you have heard of him, he's a major classic commentator, who says basically there's a principle in the Torah. There is no before and after, which means that's just the name of the principle. The name of the principle means that not all the Torah portions are in order. That narrative-wise, we just took a break. So it's almost like if you piece back the narrative together, if you go from the Ten Commandments in Revelation, and then you jump to the next narrative, which is Moses going up and then the golden calf, right? And then read back to here, which is a pause to tell us some laws and poetry and whatever this is, right? Um, And and you say that that doesn't necessarily mean that this was given then, it's just they're telling it to us now as the reader because there's a connection between what's about to happen in this set of verses. And that's how Rashi tries to understand it. So according to Rashi's view, Ron, this could easily be God's attitude towards us after the golden calf, right? Which then all of a sudden you're like, wow, this story might make a little more sense, right? All of a sudden they're worried about idolatry, you know, and God's talking to us in this manner, and what's the angel for? Um, and then you have a whole different discussion, right? If you're strict about, no, 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 the Torah is given in this order, which is chronological order, then you have to assume that this has a different context and that then you have to solve, solve for X a little bit differently to use a commercial that's going around. All right. Uh, did I call on anybody else that I skipped? I don't want to miss anyone. Anybody else want to say anything about any other parts of this text? Question. Yes. Uh, in 23, they list three peoples, uh, six peoples. And then they only list a few, right. And then there's 23 and 28. Yeah. Um, there's, I don't remember. The plague and three got something else? Well, it's a good question, and I'm going to profess ignorance. Um, there is, and I've studied it before, there is commentary. It's, I remember it being a bit technical about why this is the listing of six and why this is the listing of three and you know, making the connections. And I'm sure it's interesting. Honestly, I'm sure it's interesting. I don't recall it. And it's not one of the ones that Melton focuses on. So it's certainly not in the front of my head. But it's a good catch. I mean, a close reading is always a good thing if you can pick these things up. In this case, I can't really give you a great answer off the top of my head. Um, I, I would like to hide... Oh, Barry, I, I, I was thinking, I have an experience in Israel, and I'll share it here, and it doesn't exactly fit. Sure. Elsewhere, it talks about... You know, the Israelites going in and taking out the, the areas where they to destroy their idols and destroy their altars. And we happened to be on a dig, and there was an archaeological site where it was pointed out that there was a Canaanite art, uh, altar. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought those were supposed to be destroyed. They must have missed that one. <laughs> or they apparently didn't do what they were told they were supposed to do. Right. They're historically archaeological. That's also... Um, there's um, a debate about whether a text like this was more conceptual, metaphoric, symbolic, um, or whether it was actually a, a descriptor of like, this is what you shall do, you know? Um, and, and it's a debate, even amongst classic commentators, about how realia this was supposed how really directive it was supposed to be, or how, if this was more of a, a poetic way of saying, hey, be good. Follow the Torah. Don't worship idols. I'm giving you the land. 
you're going to get there, it's going to be okay. I'm going to make sure it's going to be okay. Don't mess it up by following what the locals do. You stick to your, your plan, everything's going to be fine. right? Because if you were to extrapolate, that would probably be, that's basically the message that God's really trying to give to the Israelites. We, we have, may have an issue with how it's said here. right? But basically it's saying, hey, I'm giving you an angel. He's going to lead you through. You're going to get to the land. They're going to fall in front of you, right? You're going to, you, you, you might look like it's hard for you to capture this land, but you, it won't be. I'm going to make sure that it happens. And the one thing, though, is, is that when you get there and you settle in there, the snare is, is that you might be tempted to be like, oh, you know what? I'm going to do what those guys do. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's bad. That's going to lead down the wrong path. And to Barry's point, um, in addition to this, Maybe it was conceptual, so they didn't actually have to destroy. There's even a little, perhaps, a little bit of a contradiction here. Because if they go in there and they do destroy everything, then how can there be a snare? Right? They've, if they've killed everyone, if that's what the real plan is, and they've destroyed everything, then who's going to snare them? Um, part, of, part of my read, and the, the text, the, the commentaries don't really delve too much into this, which is why I'm going to give you the Michael Schwab. I'm not sure that I see awesome evidence that this is supposed to be a proscriptive text saying go in there and kill everyone. I don't think that's what it's saying. God is saying that when you go in, I'm going to go ahead of you and I think the impression is for those who will stand in your way I'm going to plague them away, I'm going to terrorize them, I'm going to destroy them. I'm not sure it's saying to the Israelites hey, when you go in you, go annihilate them, right? Um, I think it's saying, God saying, you think that they're big armies and you're scared of them? If they're going to get in your way, don't worry. I got my own tricks, right? I'm going to send the terror. I'm going to send the plague. I'm not sure it's telling them what they are, have to do or are going to do. About the idols, I think it's saying, yes, you go in there and you, you, you rip those things up. He does say, I, I will drive them. I, I will drive them. Yes, and that's God, yeah, in right, my opinion, right, or the angel. Right, yeah. Right. So right. whichever right. depends on which so way you want to look. I read the same way. Right. So I'm just putting that out there. It's not the only way to read the text. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly, but that's how I and many others read the text. I'm not claiming brilliance yet. Even on 22, mm-hmm. it says, "I will be the enemy of your enemy and the foes of your foes." Right. I think that's the context. If they're going to be an enemy to you, I'll be the enemy. But if they're not, mm-hmm. I don't know that. It, I don't know if the text is saying. I'm still going to terrorize them. But m- maybe it is. Maybe it is. But I see the context as being, hey, it t- looks like you're going to have trouble defeating these guys because you're a ragtag bunch of slaves. You know, remember, they haven't committed their big sin of 40 w- years in wandering. The ragtag group, it's going to look like you're going to have trouble conquering this land. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. The enemy of your enemy is, you know, the en- your enemy is my enemy, and I got some tricks up my sleeve, right? I'm going to wipe them out if they're going to bother you. I don't know that it's proscriptive about what we're supposed to do or that God is necessarily going to annihilate everyone. Um, so, but go ahead. Um, geographically speaking, is, when he says that he's setting our, our borders, is this setting our borders for our journey or is this actually the borders of, of what is supposed to be our land? No, I think it's supposed to be the borders of our land. So what is, um, the, what is the equivalent of the Sea of Philistia? Is that you know, that's a really good question. Let me see what it says in the, in the Hebrew. Because I think we know the what the Sea of Reeds is. Yeah, right. It's probably, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, the Philistines were on the coast of the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. so that seems to be 
what that means. So it's just an east-west border. It's not a yes. north-south border. Yes. Well, the wilderness to the Euphrates. So that's um, the other direction. Euphrates is north. The wilderness is the Negev. So there are much more specific... Yes. Oh, oh, there are a number of places. There are much more specific borders um, in a few different places in the Torah, and it depends on which narrative you're looking at. When God says to Abraham originally, when he and Lot separate, Lot takes this other land, and God says, Abraham, you're going to be settling in Canaan, there's a set of borders um, listed. When they enter the land, there's a set of borders. They, they, they're certainly in the same ballpark as each other, but there are some cool maps. You can probably um, just Google it that compare and show you the different borders drawn by the different places in the, in the Tanakh, you know, how they would be. And you can see it's color-coded. It's, it's kind of cool. I mean, oh, you have it right there. So, so there, you can see. Right. Anyway. What do, you, what do you make of the idea that it seems like there's at least five different ways that our foes will be disposed of? There's, there's annihilation in uh-huh. 23. Yes, that's there's, the hardest one. I will terrorize them and they will turn tail in 27. Mm-hmm. There's I'll send a plague. And there's then there's um, I'll not drive them out in a single year. And then finally, uh, I'll drive them out little by little. I mean, it's, there seems to be a number of different ways. Yeah. The hardest one, um, I, I'm not sure exactly what to make of all the different ones. Um, which which makes me feel that further supports in my mind this idea that it's a little more poetic than prescriptive that it's like different ways of talking about it um, the hardest one is in verse 23 is you know when my angel goes before him brings you to these folks uh, and I annihilate them it sounds like that's what's going to happen yeah. right that's the hardest one with my theory right the other ones you know not you know turning tail sounds like they can get away you know like they'll they'll, they'll I'm just sending them ahead um, and the plague will you know driving them out not killing them all so it's it's interesting and I, I they all have a slightly different take to them but I, I think that they all seem to imply that God is in control of powers that are beyond humans right um, we humans can't send a plague we don't send a terror right we can't annihilate all at once right. We can put to the sword, we can besiege, we can... These are things that only God seems to be able to do. Like, you have some serious weapons on your side that are way beyond what any of your enemies can do. That's how I see it, right or wrong. The, the way I read this, I look at it as if, don't expect big miracles, like things are going to get... Well, that's that piece-by-piece piece part. Kind of through mm-hmm. life, you know, slowly, and, you know, things will happen and work out in your best interest, but don't... Right, and even in context, that's a beautiful way of drashing it about us too, about we can we should do piece by piece, I love it. But even in context it's saying, hey, don't expect when you get in there that all of a sudden it's like you know, I'm just gonna like hit a button and everything's gonna explode, you know. Um, I don't wanna do things in that violent, destructive way. It's another piece that kind of makes me feel like not everybody's gonna die and all that stuff. Um, you know, we're gonna you're gonna do this naturally, like piece by piece, like anybody else will, but you're just not gonna lose, right? So, you know, you're gonna go in there and you're gonna take this and then you're gonna take this. And it's not like as soon as you walk over the magic line, like all the idols are just gonna explode and like everybody's gonna run away. It's like it's not gonna work like that. So in trying to prove you wrong and failing, yes. on the issue of uh, right. uh, of God getting angry for kill, um, for not 
for saving some people. Yes. Um, I, I, there, I did the, the first chapter of, of, of Devarim, uh, where Moses recounts the, the, you know, the, the travels of the second generation before they get to the Jordan. And I mean, there, you know, there's, there's hero accounts of history. At the time, we captured all the towns, and we doomed every town, man, woman, and children, leaving no survivors. We retained his booty, only the cattle and the spoils of the cities that we captured. And then and, and there, there are a few instances in, in Moses recounting, um, you know, the, the, the advances of the second generation where they, you know, they, they have annihilated just about everyone and everything. Yes. In reality, when they do go in, there are... Um, if you read the b- book, some of them are difficult stories. Yeah, yeah. There are times where they do... Uh, in fact, engage in this way. Yeah. Usually, there's a line about that there was that they stood in their way. I mean, it was people who were the enemies. So they, they decided not to yeah. say, "Okay, you know." Um, anyway, so let's, um, if you don't mind, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go to some of the rabbinic texts. Um, we turn a page. That, well, it's just this next page, 139. It says, "Who is the angel?" Malach, commentary one, Midrash Tanchuma. It's a fourth century um, text. Um, I think I'm, I looked at these, all the sources in this chapter. I kind of like the rabbinic ones, and not that I don't like the other ones, but I personally, in our interactions, I'd like to spend time in the earlier sources. So I think we're just going to go in order and see how far we get. Like one through five or six are the ones that I thought were the most interesting. And for you, if you enjoyed class tonight and you want to know more about this subject, I would encourage you on your own to read some of the articles like sources 7 through 12 or 11. I forget how many were in this one. There are more like articles from more modern day scholars with kind of like analysis and things like that, which are interesting but are harder to read as a group um, and uh, I think less open to interpretation. It's like very clear what their point is and, and I, it, it could be interesting for you if you want to do that at home. All right. Would somebody be willing to read in the English the Midrash Tanchuma said God from there? Anyone? Go ahead, Beth. The nations of the world betrayed me, so I gave them ministers to serve. You are the same. I'm giving you an angel to protect you, as it says. Behold, I am sending an angel before you to protect you. When you merited and accepted the Torah and did my will, I would go before you. As it says, and God went before them by day. Now that you worship idols as as the nations of the world, I will only send an angel before you. All right. So What's the not, perspective here? We're not good enough to get the real, the real boss yet. So we're getting uh, like the vice president. All right. So this, the Midrash Tanhuma, looks at, I will send an angel before you, which I don't know, I didn't take a poll, how it struck me originally. Did you see that as a good thing to have the angel before you? I think most of us, upon reading, might have thought it was nice that God was sending an angel. I mean, certainly better than not sending an angel, right? But not necessarily as a replacement for God. It's like, nice, God's sending also an angel. So Midrash Tanchuma, if you felt like Midrash Tanchuma, then you're in good company because Midrash Tanchuma says, that's actually not a compliment. <laughs> right? I sent you an angel, not a compliment. I downgraded. Right? I downgraded. I used to, as it says in the book of Shimon in chapter 13, God, I used to go before you myself every day. But now, I'm not feeling so great about our relationship. I'm going to send 
my ambassador, the king isn't coming or the president's not coming to the ceremony. I'm sending my representative instead. The ambassador's going to go instead. Not, not, quite as, right, not quite as impressive, right? Not quite as impressive. So Midrash Tanakhuma is, is um, saying that. Now, what's the context for this? Like, why do you... What's, do you have any clue why the Midrash Tanakhuma might want to interpret that way? Or Daryl, what do you want to say? Now that you worship idols as nations of the world. Right, and how did, when did that happen? Well, not, not, well, could it be the colon calf? Yeah, so this is, Midrash Tanakhuma is way earlier than Rashi. is already showing us an early source that says, hey, it doesn't mean that this section, even though it comes before the narrative of the golden calf, actually chronologically came before the golden calf. Um, this is a section that's actually attached to the golden calf narrative, meaning it's setting the tone for it. So now that we understand the consequences of it and we get a better context for it, and it doesn't say all that. This is implied, perhaps, because it's saying that you worshipped idols like everybody else. So I, when did they do that, the, the commentators asked. When did, after they were saved and brought to Mount Sinai and given the Torah, when did they worship idols to all of a sudden be downgraded? No, nowhere yet. When is the next episode that this could happen? The golden calf. So must be that he's reading it, that chronologically it's, it's, it's okay to do it this way. It's out of order. Um, and therefore he's saying... That's why I made my first comment. Uh, the, you know, the other, you know, the, the, you know, come from with the text, you know, because of the golden calf, that's, he didn't trust them. That's mm-hmm. why he was tough, tough love. Right. So this is coming to say God's sending them a message, right? right. You, you want to you wanna violate the very first commandment I gave you right away? That's how you want this to work? You're distancing yourself. I'm not abandoning you. Sending an angel is still better than not sending anything at all. Most people, you know. But I'm just sending you the angel. I, I'm not... I'm not feeling great about this relationship. We need a little bit of a timeout. You know, I'm not ready to call it quits, but, 40 years. you know, and, and at the time, it's not even yet 40 years. He, theoretically, it's a great point, by the way. Theoretically, what's, if you read the verses that we read, right? Theoretically, the timeout is until when? Until when? When does God come back into the picture? When you enter the land, Right? So, according to Midrash Tanakhuma, he would read this as, you know what? You want to violate the first, you want to, you know, violate the covenant, like, right away? <laughs> you want to, all right. I'm sending an angel. He'll take you through the wilderness part. Let's take a time out. We just take a breather. When you get to the land, and you're going to enter the holy land, and you want me to be with you, I'll be there for you, but be ready. Let's, let's mend some fences, do your tshuva. You know, we'll meet, we'll meet each other in Eretz Canaan, right? That's that we're Eretz Israel. That's, that's seems to be the Midrash Tanakhuma's uh, take on it. Um, any other thoughts? I have two, <laughs> right? And I'll put them in question form, okay? Number one, right? What's this part about the nations of the world betrayed me, so I gave them, quote, ministers, which if you look in the Hebrew is actually um, uh, so these kind of like rulers or ministers to serve you are the same I'm giving you an angel to protect you what's going on here yeah guessing yeah 
Okay. I'm guessing too. Well, there's no key. There's no uh, answer key. <laughs> I, I weren't we told that the Torah was offered to many people mm -hmm. and that the Jews accepted it. So I think that am I right? Somebody say I'm right. <laughs> Renee, you're right. <laughs> um, so I think that's so, in other words, let me try to paraphrase, get Thank like you. behind it. No, no, I want to understand. I want to make sure that I, I'm capturing the comparison to the Midrash about showing the Torah to the other nations. Is that God is the God of everyone, right? So God's everyone's God. And what separated Israel from the other nations? We accepted the Torah. And then what happens when we violate the covenant? Well, yeah, we're kind of like the other nations again. So that's, I think, the sense of the Midrash here is like, hey, you know, you know what makes you special? What makes you special? The Following the Torah. When you don't follow the Torah, guess what? Yeah. You're not special. <laughs> right? You're just like everybody else. He uses the, right? word, he uses the word betrayed me, which yeah. again makes it seem like um, there was some sort of act or so, something actually happened. Right. It was the act of not right, the act of not calling the covenant, which could be the golden calf, um, or then we'd have to substitute something else, which is harder if we don't do that. And then what? What Renee, I think, was saying, and what I meant is saying the other nations betrayed me. Right. I, I went to six the, other nations, and they all they all said no. Okay. Right. They they had the opportunity, and they said, eh. You know, the, the midrash was, and I don't know if he's actually envisioning that exact midrash, but it's the same idea. Or he might actually, this Midrash knows the other Midrash. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, it's possible. But this, it's the concept of everyone had the opportunity, right? And when, when they were exposed to it and they said no, that was a betrayal of God. And it speaks in general to a rabbinic point of view of like, hey, world, wake up. Do you really think the sun is its own God? Right, you have the opportunity to look out in the world and, and recognize these things, right? But you choose not to, and that's a betrayal. This is the dramatic personification of the rabbi saying, hey, we all have the opportunity to understand that there's only one God. The evidence is all around, and you're choosing not to accept it. So then the question is, if they all betrayed God, and, and the Jewish people betrayed God, why did God stick with them? Well, that's a good question, but there's a, there's a simple textual answer to that question, okay. which is that when God made the covenant with the people, he said he would be their people forever and okay. never abandon them. So in the fine print, it, do, it does say, you have to do this, and, and if you do, then everything's going to go well for you. Um, and so if we don't, then things are not necessarily going to go well for you. But in the fine print, it says, but I'm never going to abandon you. Right? So, theoretically, according to this point of view, this, this conception of things, theoretically that's true. Um, and, and, and he says he gave them ministers too. He like, in other words, God, even though they all rejected it, God also gave them a guide, you know, a minister, uh, maybe not quite a malach. I don't know if it's purposeful that he doesn't use the same word for them and us. But, God, other people have a guide. God appointed somebody to watch over them too. And now that you decided to abandon me, 
you're just going to get the ambassador too. You're going to get the regular guide. Uh, you're not going to get the owner isn't going to come. The chef's not going to come out of the kitchen and, and sit with you, right? He, you're going to get the waitress, um, and that's just the way it is. You're still going to get served, right? You're still going to get taken care of, but it's a different level of service. Yeah. I mean, you almost can draw the um, the borders, if you would, between when God was at Sinai and the and, and the Jewish people said, you know, we 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 will obey and we hear. Yes. And that's almost an affirmation that they will accept the Torah at that point. Mm-hmm. And then in the Torah itself, I mean, God says after the after the golden calf inc- um, incident. He says, I will not go in your midst, since you are a stiff-necked people. He said, I destroy you on your way. Yes. I mean, it wasn't even a, a, a mission, you know, it wasn't a commentary. I mean, it's in the actual text of the Torah where he made that statement. Absolutely. Okay. The core of it is definitely in the Torah. And that's where these Midrashim, they play off of these things. Yeah. So that's when they embellish sometimes dramatize things in order to make a point or personify things in order to make a point. So I think it's a really, it's a a good point that you're making that it it comes from the core of the text, absolutely. Um, So the other thing is, I don't know if it's more of a a problem with the text or a question, but, you know, what is this malach anyway, this angel? Um, When did we encounter malachim previously in the text? Yeah. No, you oh. said in the text. I was going to say Abraham. But Abraham. Yeah, yeah, no, no, not in this text. Yeah, I mean in the Torah. You're right. You, you and I are thinking the same. I meant uh, the Torah, which, which is correct. So one of them is the Abraham story. How did the Malach look? What what was the Malach appear? And what was the point? What is the what was the um, function of the Malach in the Abraham story? Go ahead, Renee. It's welcoming the strangers. They came to Abraham right after he had circumcised himself. And he was Ill, right. Yet he welcomed them and fed them. Right. That's the that's the Abraham uh, point. Okay, so but what, am I what did the malach? How did the malach appear? And what was the function of the malach? Not how did Abraham treat them? Uh, well, they were men. They, were they looked like men. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They looked like men. And what's their function? They were messengers. Right. They were messengers. Right. Or. Um, one of them perhaps had a, what we call a tough key to task. So two of them had a verbal task of messaging, right? You're going to, even though you're old, you're going to have a son, Isaac, and I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And supposedly the way the rabbis divide it up, it's not 100% obvious in the text, but this is very logical. Um, the third one's task, because there were three of them, and the rabbi said each of them had a task. One said the thing about Isaac. The others told Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the third one? The third one actually carried out the destruction, right? The third one is the one, when they went to Sodom and Gomorrah, who kind of embodied God's plan. Um, so why am I telling you this? And there are other examples. There's the angel you know, that wrestles with Jacob, whether it's a dream or not a dream, but it, again, again, comes in the form of a human being, has a specific role, right? So, if you're reading the word Malach through those earlier stories, then what do you assume this angel is going to be? Some guy, right? That, I I, I wish I could say that, but if I'm being literal, they appear as men. Mm -hmm. So, if if I'm being literal, what do we learn from those stories? Mm -hmm. Some guy who has a specific task, Mm -hmm. right, is going to appear or something like that, right? And do whatever it is that God asked them to do. In this case, perhaps guard or guide the Jewish people. Well, does anybody recall that story in the Torah? Well, there's a few instances. No, I mean, sorry. 
I'm going to be more specific. Does anybody recall that in the story of the wandering, these Jews that we're talking about right now, when did the angel appear? I think it's not obvious. Let's just put it that way. It's not obvious that literally some guy showed up. You're saying I, that Moses is the angel? Oh, well, maybe. So now, you're, now, now, we're in a, now we're in another place, right? So there is going to be, if we get to it, a commentary. And like I say this sometimes because I never know how long we're going to be and whether I should jump or not jump. Whatever. It's all good, right? There is an interpretation that says, maybe this malach is not... It's not... There's two other models for Malach, right? Maybe the Malach is not the Malach like Abraham or the one that Jacob wrestled with. Um, it's actually literally a human being. It's like an emissary or agent of God. We all could be em- theoretically agents of God. Moses is the guy, right? That's who he's talking about. You know what? I'm not going to be with you all the time. You messed up. I'm going to, I'll talk to Moses, right? So goes this commentary. This is when God decided, you know what? Remember when I talked to you on Mount Sinai and you said to me, wow, your, your voice is overpowering and I just, just let Moses talk. You know what? I'm going to take your own advice. I'm not going to talk to you guys. I'm not really going to live with you. Um, I'm going to talk to Moses. And Moses will talk to you, right? I'm not going to guide you. Moses will guide you, but I'll guide Moses. Right? So it separates out whatever, and maybe Moses is the Malach. What's the other option? The other option is angels. Right? Maybe some of you thought an angel came down, right? Like, I don't know if he has wings or he doesn't, but some really supernatural being, right? Not a guy like the, the one in the, the, the three guys who came who didn't appear any different than anybody. Yeah, like, going further along the scale of supernatural being. Um, maybe it's that kind of angel. And maybe it's like not an angel that they can see. It's like the invisible angel who's going to guide them along the path. Or maybe it's a conceptual angel. It just means God's going to be with them, right? It's not an actual being angel. Um, this is some of the questions that the rabbis have. Who is this angel? And what is the nature of this angel? And exactly what is the angel's task? Part of it is clear, guide or guard, whatever. Um, but why the angel? And this is part of what the Midrash Tanchuma is trying to, to wrestle with. And in this case, the Midrash Tanchuma is proposing that this is theoretically some sort of supernatural type of angel, like the guardian angel almost of each nation. Every nation, there's another Midrash that it's linked to, that every nation in the world has a guardian angel. Um, what's special about us is that sometimes we get the owner of the you know, to come out and sit with us, right? We actually got God, who we interact with directly, um, and not modified through an angel. And maybe there's some historical influence, because every rabbi who gives a sermon is influenced by his cultural surroundings and what he knows, right? So maybe this 4th century rabbi writing this was influenced by maybe a culture of the Gnostics or the Greeks who believed in angel stories, and who knows? Um, but that's part of the question here. Who is this malach and what is his function? I understand. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, in a sense, like throughout the wanderings of the desert, I mean, there's issues that are posed to Moses. Moses goes to ask God, what should I do? And God says, well, you know, well strike the rock or well, you know, issues of, of the inheritance of the land with, with uh, Noah and the sisters. I, I think the opposite. I think because yeah, yeah. he did... He, yeah. he, he threw the tablets down. Yeah, yeah. He struck the rock. Yeah. I think the opposite. Well, well, there, well there's two times. I mean, yeah. two times got, well, the Israelites needed water. One time, 
God says, you know, Moses goes to God says, what should I do? God says, take the staff, you know, strike the right. rock, and the water comes forth. Another time, there's the you know, people are one asking right. for water. Moses says, what should I do? And God says, well, tell the rock to give water. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there's a time where these three women, you know, whose whose the father died, and, and there's just women in the family, yeah. and they're making a claim for land. And God goes, and Moses goes, what should I do? And God says, you know, their claim is just. I mean, there's this. Communication. That's that's. Yeah, but he, why would he? Done, what, why would he yeah. defy God? That's what huh? I'm saying. To you. Why would he defy God? Oh, and and then well, why would he? Well, that is a separate question. I think what Perry's saying is is yeah. that the yeah. model here is is that yeah. according to what Mary said and what I'm alluding to this text that we haven't mm-hmm. read yet, mm-hmm. that perhaps Moses is the Malach referred to here. Yeah. Is that these stories prove yeah. that instead of yeah. instead of the people directly appealing to God. They talk to Moses, and Moses is the one that then yeah. talks to God. Um, so, yeah, you know, and, and there, there are texts that seem to imply what? You said that God said that he would come back to them once they got to their land. Mm-hmm. And didn't Moses die, like, right before they got to their land? Perfect, right? Fits the model. So the, the, the people writing these commentators, the commentaries, excuse me, they're no dummies, right? They, they see patterns. Like I said, there's no answer key. We don't know whether this text meant Moses whether this text meant a supernatural angel, whether this text meant something in between, whether it was poetic and conceptual, and malach really means just an aspect of God, which is what I think most modern and postmodern commentators have come to, like, looking at it a little bit more literarily, like, a lot of people tend to revolve around this idea that the malach is embodied in the narrative, but it really just means an aspect of God embodied either in a narrative... Um, you know, represented by a figure. It's not, there wasn't really a guy, you know, that talked to Abraham, but it was, it was the aspect of God told in the story form, right? And that this is just the aspect of God. And in that case, if it's the aspect of God, then the Midrash Tanakhuma doesn't make any sense. Because Midrash Tanakhuma is claiming that we got an angel almost as a penalty or a downgrade. Um, and that, that's not just an aspect of God. That's a downgrade, right? There's a difference. Um, and so... That's where Midrash Tanhuma, when it is related to like a, a modern commentary, they probably disagree, you know, with their outlook on things. I, I just want to ask you a quick question. When it said we, you know, you said we get a downgrade. Does God ever talk directly to anybody but Moses? Don't we always have an emissary? Um, no, um, God has spoken to other people, but always, but previous to Moses. And the examples are the most recent one is God spoke to the entire assemblage of B'nai Israel at the mountain. And then they said, hey, stop talking to us. Right? So we have evidence that God did address everyone because they all said, stop. Right? So that's, that's, that's the most obvious one that was right okay. before. But God speaks directly to Abraham. That wasn't an angel. No. No. In some of the instances, it wasn't an angel. He no. clearly... I mean, in, um, yeah, no, also. Yeah, God speaks okay. to Noah. Um, you know, and, and, and you could, God really speaks to Jacob as well. Joseph, he does moderated by dreams, so it's yeah, hard to, okay. it's hard to know, say, did he speak to God? Or I don't, it's, How about Pinchas? I don't recall God directly speaking know, to Pinchas. Doesn't God say, like, doesn't God say, you're, you're, you're this um, vigilant you know, guarder? God says that to Moses, I believe. But I don't want to... We'd have to look it up, and that's going to take us a little far afield. But I I don't think he speaks directly to Pinchas, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. Um, No, no, no apologies. All right, so um, you can... I think that this is a great midrash for bringing up 
the different ways of trying to read this text yeah. and also trying to understand and struggle with this weird poet poetic section that brings up this angel out of nowhere, like, I'm going to give you an angel. Where is the angel? We don't ever see the angel. What's the story with the angel? Why the angel? It, it's, a, it's odd. You know, for, for, for the reader, it's odd. And I don't know how many of you have actually ever read th- this text closely and noticed. Do you remember, you know, after the revelation, God said, I'm going to give you an angel that's going to carry you through the desert? I mean, it's not the most talked about text, um, and, but it's interesting. Um, so, for a moment, um, if you would permit me, because it's longer, but I want to kind of pause at certain points, I want to read to you a little bit of a Bravenel. He's a, you know, mostly a 15th century, uh, lived into the early 16th century, um, scholar from Portugal, um, classic commentator, uh, medieval. And he says the following, When God wanted to benefit Israel, to place them uniquely under his guidance, for he loved the patriarchs, he deemed it proper to bring them to the special land prepared for them and to remove them from the impure land of Egypt. What is he doing? He's looking back at other Egypt narratives. This isn't the first time, well, in this case it's Jews, but the Jew has gone to Egypt. Just look at Abraham, right? Abraham perhaps even did it twice um, already before. And we also had stories where, like, Jacob left Israel, like, went back to, you know, went back outside of Israel to uh, where um, his mother was from and so on and so forth. So we have these stories of leaving Israel, going to Egypt. We have all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and the idea was is that each time when God really wanted to bless them, he always brought them back to the land. There's something special about that. So he took them out from there with his absolute power and brought them to Sinai. So now, back to our story, the, Jew, the Israelites were in Egypt. He's like, they can't stay there. Right? So God says, I'm taking them out. And he used, this is when God demonstrates his godliness or her godliness and brings the Israelites to the, with his or her power out. Right? And where does he bring them? Um, to Israel. But what does he have to do along the way? He perfected their souls there through the Torah and the mitzvot that he gave to them personally. Again, emphasizing, this is going to be important, and not through an agent. Who do we think is going to be the agent that he's going to talk about? The Malach, right? For these two great wonders, the Exodus and the Egypt and receiving the Torah from the mouth of the Almighty, right? From God, God's self, were brought about by divine providence and not through the heavenly host. Heavenly host is a representation, tzvaot, it's like through, um, you know, kind of on the ground's power. You know, God did this not causing through natural ways something to happen. After he made them hear the Ten Commandments in their entirety and he taught the laws and incorporated them, he said, Behold, I am sending an angel before you. That's our text, right? That's our verse. As if he was saying, and here is the interpretation. Now he's getting to, that is as if God was saying, you were afraid that I would personally appear to you to the point where you said, and let not God speak with us lest we die. And this is the correct attitude so that you do not think that just as you merited this supernal communion with me at the Exodus and at Revelation to this day, that it will continue in this vast and awful wilderness that you travel in. For just as you are not ready and not able to listen to my words, so is this desert not able to tolerate my communion nor my divine providence. Period. For a moment. Do you, do you follow that at all? What is he saying, Jay? Well, I... I, I I don't have the answer key. What is he saying? <laughs> I want to know. I think what he's saying is that um, there was a moment when I gave you the Ten Commandments, I gave you the Torah, uh, I brought you out of Egypt, 
um, that was unique. But you're not prepared for what all of that means. Um, uh, and until you are prepared, my continued presence with you uh, doesn't resonate, doesn't make sense. I'm not turning away from you, but I'm going to have this angel protect you and be with you as a sign that I'm still with you. But I don't need to be here <coughs> until you're ready to be with me, if you will. Great. Um, I would add a couple of things to that because I think that's 100% correct, um, in my opinion. But I think, first of all, there's, there's in the line that you're talking, I think it's more than God saying, I don't need to be here, right? I don't know if anybody caught this. What is God actually saying? Not worthy. No. no. Mm, I don't know. It's too much for human nature to take. Right. In other words, you don't even want me to be here. He's saying, remember how I came to you? This is the part that I was saying. As if he was saying, as if God was saying to us, you, Israelites, you were afraid that I would personally appear to you. Right? You're the ones who don't want me. You're, like, scared of me. Right? When I come, like, full out in your face, you, like, want to run in the other direction. And my proof is, is that when I came to you on Mount Sinai, you told me to be quiet and to go away. And that you just wanted Moses to talk. Right? So he's saying, I'm emphasizing this because of the attitudinal shift between the two texts. Is the angel coming because of a downgrade in the relationship because we did something wrong? No. No, the angel's coming because you don't want me. And he's not saying that in a mean way. He's saying, I'm doing you a favor, right? I'm meeting your needs. You can't handle the truth. Right? You told me you can't handle it. So I'm, okay, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to freak you out, right? I will not appear before you. You told me that that was too much for you, right? And you said, lest we die. You were, that's how scared you were about it. And, and then he goes on to say, that attitude that you had as Israelites to be a little bit scared and it to be too overwhelming for me to be like totally in your presence, that's the correct attitude, right? So that you do not think, and there's a, there's a lesson behind it, and this is where, I don't know, I would call it the stretch, right? This is where he makes a point that not only is not obvious in the text, but it's not even like, I think so far, he's like one step to the text, right? That's a pretty cool lesson that he's learning so far. I think it's a nice connection. It's kind of there, even though it's not directly in there. I think he's making nice comparisons. He's a tight reading, right? Now he makes a stretch. I think he goes a little further afield. He says, this is the correct attitude. Do not think that just as you merited the supernal communion with me at the Exodus and at the Revelation um, to this day. So... The reason that it's a correct attitude to, to be scared that I'm, you know, there is so, so that you don't think that me showing my full power both in the Exodus and that Revelation will continue in this vast and awful wilderness that you travel in. What does that mean? The lesson is... You're going to have to do some of this on your own. Okay. What has been will not always be. That's also true. What does the wilderness have to do with it? I think if you follow it closely, what he's saying, which is why I'm calling it a stretch, because I don't think it's obvious, 
he's saying that not only right am I overwhelming in my presence, but it's not really the appropriate place for me to appear to you in this wasteland. The not prepared part is in part influenced by the fact that this bar it can't contain me. You, you, can't, you can't understand me here. You have to be where? You have to be in Israel. Right. When, so, when, when you're in a sacred place, you'll be able to under, you'll understand the sacred me better. So basically, it's not, I mean, I know I'm just repeating kind of what you're saying, but it's not suitable to be too distracted trying to live in that environment and to be, and to be in the presence of God, to be around God at the same time. Great, and that's another lovely right. extension, trying to understand why the wilderness isn't suitable, right. why the people couldn't connect to God in there. Your, your, your um, uh, nice uh, extension interpretation is, well, I'm t- we'll be too busy like trying to survive in the wilderness. We can't really focus on, mm-hmm. on, on the presence of God or the blessing of God. And that's a nice, nice assumption because when they do get to the land of Israel, the, um, the miracle of God will be more obvious because it's like we've reached the promised land and God has cleared the way and everything's good and in this great gratitude and in the miracle of the, the fulfilled promise, it'll be much easier to connect to God. But here you're in the wilderness, you're, you're fighting for survival the not prepared part, he's connecting, in my opinion, to the fact that not only you're not prepared because you haven't matured, but you're not prepared because the environment in which you're in, the stage that which you're in, in physically, the land in which you're in, does not allow you to be prepared. You cannot have the spiritual potential that you need to be at here. Where do you have to go? Um, behold, I'm sending an angel before you. I'm at the top of the page. But this would not last forever in the way the other nations are guided by angels. Remember, we learned that from the last one. All the other nations have an angel. That, that state where you're only going to be led by an angel, this is what the two texts share, is that the angel is still an only, right? But no, the first one is because we did something wrong. And the second one, this was, it's, it's more of a matter of, this is re- reality. It has to be an angel, right? You didn't do anything wrong. There's actually... Just, just what's appropriate, right? So, but that's not going to last forever for you. But rather, only to, and now he's parsing in quotes, to protect you along the way. For example, while going through the desert. And protecting is an interesting, as there's a double to it. Protect you from the outside because of the wilderness, but also to protect you from the full exposure to God before you're ready for it. Right? The angel is your screen, right? And to bring you to the place which I have prepared which is the special land and the region that he prepared to settle them there. Thus it was the angel was in charge to lead and protect them all the while that they were in the desert until they would arrive in land and no more. For the angel will not lead them once they arrive in land, nor in the matter of the conquest, for then God will lead them. And, and there will his providence adhere to them, not through an angel, as he had foretold to Abraham. So it's only in the land that God in God's fullness can really truly adhere to the people and merge with the people and be palatable to the people. It's, Go. It's kind of a promise that isn't kept to a whole generation that raised for 40 years and dies before they get there. Correct. If you look at it as God not fulfilling the promise, if you look at it as they broke the covenant, then maybe you look at it a little, differ- okay. a little differently. Right. In other words, who violated the covenant first? Right. Who broke the contract? Right. Once the contract's broken, then the contract's broken. But um, you know, the Torah tells the the story basically is he brought him to the promised land. He told him to go in, and they like refused to go in. So fine. So don't go in. You know. 
and Shalachacha were the angels on vacation? What happened there? Well, the spies went ahead and things didn't work out. Um, I would say that's a good question whether the angel was on vacation. I like the way it's put. I feel like I could write a, I f- I feel like I could write a short story now called The Angels on Vacation. Um, I like titles. So. Um, I would probably answer, I don't really know the answer, I would probably answer that when they got to the border of the promised land, that's when the angel kind of clicked off duty, you know, legitimately. Like, they were supposed to go in, God said, okay, take the step. The angel is no longer, God, the angel did his job. angel got them there safely. Um, they just decided, you know what, we should scout it out. And then they, because that wasn't God's call, that was their call. God gave him permission. But they were the ones that said, you know what, we should scout, fine, scout it out. So they scout it out and they come out, well, you know what, that doesn't look good in there. And so even after our text that we've been reading, that God will send the terror and you know, be the enemy of your enemy and all that kind of stuff, they still were like, mm, we, we're not going to win that one. We're not going to win that one. And the line was, as we look like grasshoppers in their eyes, you know, we're nothing, we're going to get stomped, right? And that's when God's like, yeah, you don't, you don't. You don't have the faith. And, and frankly, they, they were the, he basically let them pick their own path. You don't want to go in? Okay. So you won't go in. You'll never go in. <laughs> Your children will go in because my covenant is with the people, not with you, right? But that was your choice, and he just made the choice more permanent for that generation as opposed to, fine, don't go in, and then asking them tomorrow, are you ready now? No. Okay, tomorrow. Are you ready now? No. He just said, fine. Yeah, okay. So um, anyway, um, so th- I don't know whether what this perspective brings up, but what it certainly brings into the text, whether you like it, agree with it or not, is it, is it does bring up the subject of the sacredness of the promised land, right? Is there a connection between the land of Israel and the spirituality that a Jew should have in this, that Jew's connection to God? Is it true that in quote-unquote the holy land, we are holier, or that somehow we, we can be holier, we can be more connected to God. Um, in context here, it seems to be saying, this, this interpretation seems to be saying, yeah, yeah. Um, at least for that generation, if not to extrapolate out to us today, they couldn't really connect to God the, where they were. They needed to be in the land. And that's when they were going to be able to connect. So the angel becomes a metaphor, one lesson. The angel becomes a metaphor, in a sense, for them not being prepared. The angel is when they're not prepared, when they graduate to God level, right? And, and it happens when they get to the promised land. That's when they graduate. Who did I just cut off, Ron? Was there a scenario where we would have been let out, would have received the Torah, and then would have accepted the covenant and would have been brought right to the land? Because it seems here that God says, well, you guys kind of made your own choice and you kind of, uh, you know, sort of carved your own path. And, and this, I guess we're reading ahead a little bit, but these 40 years are, are your own your own doing. And because God's saying, I was pre- we were prepared, we were ready to go, and you said you don't want to talk to me, so I brought the same. I mean, he's kind of making it seem like you guys have sort of made your own destiny here. Is that... I think that's probably true, and it's certainly implied in the Shlachacha, the spies story. Um, and by the way, it goes back to, it might have even been your point before, which is the, yeah, the whininess, you know, like treating us like we're children a little bit um, in here that God is kind of like, 
that we did something wrong and God's treating us like a parent does a child. Well, that was you, right, at the beginning, right, Ron? Yeah. Um, that um, this idea here, of course, that um, if you have to tell people what the law is, and if there's contingencies, like if you, if you, if you, then what does that imply? There's choice. It's not even an implication. It's like that's the presumption, actually. Um, and so the presumption, in all, I think, in all of the Torah is, is that we have the choice. So, yeah, you know, according to the Torah, we can make our bed and then lie in it, right? I mean, it's not predetermined that we're just going to do all these things. So our choices have consequences, and if we choose... I don't want to listen to you, God, or I'm going to do the golden calf, or I'm going to send scouts and then decide not to go in. These are all choices that we can make, and then there's consequences that are that happen from them. Is there was there a scenario that the Israelites could have left Egypt, gone to the, get the Torah, and make it to Israel pretty smoothly? Absolutely, that was the plan. That was the plan. Um, I will say this though: the Melton curriculum is purposefully showing you texts that are flipping the Malach idea to be a little bit negative or more sophisticated because the contextual read, if you were just reading through, I think for most of us would be like, cool, they get an angel, right? You know, that's nice, right? These texts are purposely shown to us to make it more like, huh, the rabbis, actually some of them, thought that maybe this was means something different that it's a downgrade, or maybe it means that they weren't ready, right? These are different perspectives on what a malach is, because if you read it straight through without this, you might be like, oh, that's nice, God sent an angel. And then you don't have any of these problems. The text doesn't imply that they did anything wrong, you don't have to worry about the golden calf, right? The text doesn't imply anything, that they made a mistake, that they're you know, lying in their own bed, you know, that they made... So, you don't have any of that stuff. You just read it straight through and it's like, oh, well, the angel's there. And the angel in some ways is God's partner and the only, the only foreboding thing that it says to us is, is that, you know, the angel's also watching you, right? See him like God. Just like God's not going to be merciful if you break all the rules. And don't, don't think the angel's going to be any different. That's the only foreboding comment about the angel in here. I think it's also interesting that... Um sort of a metaphor for life, but that you go into the wilderness and I'm not going to follow you. Um, doesn't mean that I'm not, that I'm disconnected because the angel is there as my representative, if you will, but I'm not going to chase you down. And if you presumably never come out of the wilderness and never accept my ways or try to find me, whether that's the Holy Land or however we want to define that, then I'll never be with you. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll never find God, mm-hmm. so to speak. And um, which I think is a little different than uh, if you don't obey my ways, you'll be punished, etc. Here he's just, he, God is saying, I'm just, you know, arm's length here. Yeah. It's kind of up to you yeah. whether you want to come back or continue to wander in the wilderness. I'm not going to chase you down. But there's always an angel there because I still love you yeah. and want you to come back, but it's just not going to be me. And, and, and perhaps even Abravanel is saying that it's actually appropriate and good that you want an angel instead of me. It's like the right stage, right? You're not ready 
you know, you, it's good that you want training wheels, right? Because you're, you're not quite ready to jump on the bike yet, right? This is, this, it's actually okay, it's good. Um, it, it, so he sees the angel meaning something more than, yay, I have an angel, but he's not in the camp of the Tanhuma, which says that the angel means he did something wrong or something bad. Um, okay. Any other thoughts? So just, just to give you something else before we go, um, the shortest one out of the early ones is commentary number four on the bottom of 144. I'll just give you, um, Kasudo is a much more modern uh, fo- uh, guy uh, who's an Italian scholar who's also the chief rabbi of uh, Florence. And um, he died in 1951. So he's a professor at the Hebrew University. Um, but he's really well regarded and even in um, traditional circles where professors at universities aren't necessarily quoted, Casuto is one of those that's, that you know the Orthodox world also turns to sometimes. Um, I just want to read to you um, this, and if we have a few more minutes, we'll, we'll, we'll analyze. The initial words, Behold, I send an angel before you, do not imply a being distinct from God. Now we're in a totally different universe from the other commentators, right? Um... There's no distinction between God and Malach, right? In ancient thought processes, the line of demarcation between the sender and the sent is liable, e- liable easily to be blurred. In other words, who's the sender? God. Who's the sent? The angel. The distinction between the two in the ancient world, in his opinion, is very blurry, right? The, the God projects the angel. Is the angel really different than God? In his view, not really. Um, and he thinks that's the... What, by saying the thing about the ancient world, I just want you to understand, he's, he's claiming not to be projecting his 20th century mind. He's claiming that's actually the, what we call the pshat, the contextual understanding of the text. The ancients thought that, right? So he's not trying to say, I now am making a drosh as a 20th century guy. He's saying the ancients probably didn't see the difference between the sender and the, um, and the sense. In the final analysis, the angel of God is simply God's action. What does malach mean? The embodiment of what God intended to do. So if God wants to guard you, then his malach is guarding. That just means that God wanted to guard you. It's just a different language separating God from the action in the world. So when God sends an angel of death, for example, Great example. God bringing death. Right? Because God is in charge of life and death. Right? So the angel of life, God gives birth. Right? It's not an angel doing it. It's not an angel bringing death. It's like a separate entity. It's just a phrase that means the embodiment of God's action in the world. That's what malach means. From another part of the Bible, we learn what is meant by an angel of the Lord being sent before one. In, and this is back to Abraham. says, the Lord, the God of heaven, dot, 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 he will send his angel before you. But in the continuation of the narrative, there's not the slightest reference to an actual angel accompanying the servant. It is only related that the Lord prospered, this, uh, prospered his way. And the servant says, as for me, the Lord has led me in this way. In other words, what he's trying to say is when it says there's an angel before you, that phrase indicates not a real angel. It means that God is going to be with him so that 
whatever God had promised is going to occur. That if God said, I'm going to send an angel before you and you're going to be successful in finding a bride for Isaac, then that means not that there's an actual angel, but that he will find a bride for Isaac. Right? That's what it means. Um, and then he says, compare another place. It is clear from that passage, therefore, that the angel stands only for the guidance and help of the Lord. Similarly, it's stated in Numbers, and sent an angel and brought us forth out of Egypt, but above in the Bible designates the pillar of cloud, the angel of God. Hence the words under discussion here mean only, I will guide you and prosper you. So he's saying, take out all of the imagery of the angel as um, an actual figure, and all it means is when God says these things is, I will guide you. Is the you know the angel that's going to go in front of you is just to guide you in the desert, for example, in this case. And I will make sure that everything prosper you means that it's going to go well for you, right? I'm going to guard you, protect you, and make sure you get where you're going. In the continuation at the end of verse 22, this is in our text, and also further on, it is clear that the reference is to the actions of God Himself. All the theological concepts, and this is when he makes it a general principle, all the theological concepts that the expositors have attached to this passage with reference to the functions of angels, their nature, and their relations to God, and the like, are completely foreign to the simple meaning of Scripture. Basically, in his nice, polite, academic way, which is very different than the medieval way of doing it, which was very not polite to the other scholars that they disagreed with, he's saying, all the other scholars got it wrong. Right? All the other things about the angels and their nature and what's the relationship between the angel and God, it's not, it's not what it means. There is no distinction. There's this thing as an angel. There's no nature to an angel. Right? There's no distinction between the na- angel and God. It just means what God's embodiment is in, in the action that happens. Right? They all got it wrong. And he's claiming that his understanding, again, is not drash. It's not interpretive analysis, it is what we call pshat, the actual contextual, that's what he means by simple meaning, the, 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 the way one should read it in the text without being creative, without recontextualizing it, that is actually what the Torah meant. That's what pshat means. In the biblical conception, there is no precise distinction. There is no real distinction, substantive distinction, between Adonai and Malach between God and angel. And that's his point of view. Right? So, um, in the last uh, four or five minutes, does anybody have any responses to Casuto or compare, contrast these different perspectives, what you think about them? So not to be clear, but so what? So what? What? (laughs) (laughs) Whether or not is it a distinction without a difference? Whether or not we view the angels as somewhat distinct entities, whatever they may be, or it's God, but um, we're just calling it angel or angelic or whatever, How? why is that significant? What is relevant about that to us? Just so you know, I'm not copying out. I have two answers for you for that, but can I choose challenge the best, you? Choose the best one. Can I challenge <laughs> you for a second? What do you think? I mean... I don't think it makes a difference. Okay. Um, I tend to like Avernell's interpretation better uh-huh. than Casuto, um, but at the end of the day, I'm not sure that it, how much it changes. Great. So one distinction could be, especially if you're contrasting it to the Midrash Tanhuma's explanation, is that 
if angel, by definition, using that term, means that it's not fully God's presence, right, then it could imply downgrade, right? If you read it through Kasuda's eyes, there's no downgrade here. There's absolutely no downgrade. It's God. In fact, it's God actually embodied. It's not conceptual God. It's they're actually feeling God's presence because they're seeing, they're, 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 they're experiencing God's guidance, the activity of God in their life. It doesn't make right? sense because he's saying, you know, don't defy him for he will not pardon your offenses. It's, it's almost like God is telling you that he's sending a separate person there. So great. So if you are a critic of Casuto on a technical level, then you would say to Mr. Casuto, you would say to him, Rabbi Professor Casuto, you would say to him, hey, buddy, um, you're claiming to read the shot, the like literal contextual meaning, but why would God say about himself, right? I'm sending a version of myself. Why did I just say I'm going to do it, right? So that's a great criticism. Uh, there's no direct answer. The answer might be, as perhaps I biased us a little bit by starting, that it's poetic, right? That it's written in a poetry. Like, of course it's all God, Kasuda would say. It's a poetry here. Like, I'm sending an angel, gives you a feeling of, like, being protected, that you have, you know, the divine around you in a more corporeal way, which is exactly, perhaps, what Malach means to Kasuto, right? That they can feel it. They can see it. They can sense God's presence, right? That's what it means by Malach, as opposed to a literally a separate being. Um, but just to answer your question f- a little bit f- further in the first answer, and then to give you the quick second answer, by saying that there's a distinction, like in the first two, that Malach means something different, then they can read different lessons into it. Like the first one, they were downgraded. The second one, they weren't prepared, right? With Kasuto, you can't read that into the text. Kasuto is saying, God is God is God, therefore, don't read downgrade. There's no downgrade here. So that whole explanation goes out the window if you read it this way. So there is a, a consequence to reading it this way. There's no not prepared. That all goes out the window, too. You can't learn that lesson if you're Kasuto. Kasuto would just say, actually, if any lesson is to be learned, there was a positive. They could feel the tangible presence of God, which is different than the other two. So there is a substantive difference. The other thing that he would say, and then I'll get to Perry, is that the other answer is, is that if you say that an angel is separate, then you open up yourself to a whole world of supernatural beings that you kind of have to deal with. It's like, what are these angels anyway, right? Now, if you confine yourself to saying an angel simply is like almost like a robotic program's projection of God, and it is separate, but what's the difference between that and that's when I'm with you, right? But if you are going to claim that a malach actually goes a little bit beyond that and has a task that the malach carries out under God's influence, but independent of God, which is where in some you know Christian you know understandings of angels you can get a fallen angel. How do you get a fallen angel if he's just a robot, right? The angel made a choice. What do you mean the angel made a choice? Well, that's what happened. So if you start to read malach as a separate you could end up there, right? Kasuto does not want that. You know, I didn't meet him, but from what I understand, he would not, he's not into the whole, like, all these angels with different, you know, personalities and all the, the myths about them. 
he's totally uninterested in that, and he does not think that that's what the Torah is trying to communicate. So, Perry. Does that kind of support the concept that God has different names? Say more. No. I think so. I think I would agree with you, but tell me, I mean, it, it, flesh that out. I, you know, and, 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 and there's, you know, yod and yes. there's all these names. That, multiple, I think there's multiple names that God has. Yeah, right. At least a hundred. <laughs> yeah, doesn't that all reflect, like, different personalities, different functions, different... Right. Uh, and so which, who do you think that agrees with? Kasudo Okay, so you're saying that because God is referred to in different ways, maybe Malach is just another one of his names in essence, there's so many different aspects to God that we call God a lot of different things, but it's all God, right? So, good point, good point. I just want, yes. Well, I think that, I don't know who this, who this goes with, maybe Kasudo, but I think like the bottom line is, is God created us, and he knows what we need. And if we need something to physically touch and see and hear and feel in order to build up our faith, then that's what he's going to send us during this wandering. And then once we've been able to touch that person and see that person and have it more on our level, and then we get to the promised land or wherever we're going, then we can handle the abstract. And then God's angel, whatever representation of himself that he's put down for us, he can go away and we can have faith in something that's abstract that we can't see. It's beautiful. I think that's a really nice actual blend of Abravanel and Casudo because I think it's taking the Abravanel um, imagery and the, what's it called the progression that Abravanel has, but layering on the Casuto level that once they reach the promised land, it's it's it, they can do the abstraction thing. They don't need the corporeal feel. And it's, I think, a very nice blend of the two. Um, I think Kasuda would be proud of you. Um, all right. I hope so. You want to say something? Daryl gets the last word. <laughs> <laughs> um, remember, well, we, we just recall that the, the, the Jewish people were, were um, scared of God. Mm-hmm. You know? Scared of God. So th- does this kind of more humanize, for Kasuda, more humanize? God, so they're not so afraid of him? Well, perhaps. Or her? Um, yeah. Perhaps. Um, I would probably not tend to use the word humanize no, I mean, because more, that has I mean, a lot of other implications. Yeah, I don't mean humanize. But I but think maybe. that making God, um, um, it could perhaps lead to a more spiritual, intellectual conception of God, which may be less scary. Um, it's certainly less scary to Kasuto, who's an intellectual, right? you got to remember these things, right? So time and who you are and what your experience is and what your discipline is does affect, you know, how you look at a problem. I will say um, kids, kids learn that uh, there are angels. And I think that's a very comforting way to explain some of these things that are happening. Keep in mind, God is basically talking to us as if we're, as if we're children. And, and I, I think angels is probably a comforting way and a sort of an easy way to sort of understand the different things that might be going on or different ways that they can be going on. Right, and you could apply that again to the stages that we need, you know. Um, we're at children's stages, each of us in our own different way. Well, thank you for a delightful conversation, and I'll see you next time.